glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. First John chapter 5, beginning verse 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, we, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not unto death. May I say this, this is not rocket science, the evidence that there are sins not unto death of the fact that we are standing and sitting here tonight. That is evident that there are sins not unto death. We'll say more about this, and our general focus tonight is on the seriousness of sin, the life of the believer. Um, If our understanding, I'll just say this again, in context of Scripture and in context of a lot of reference to God's grace today that is misrepresenting what the Word of God teaches concerning His grace. If our concept of grace allows us to in any way have a lesser view of sin or a more favorable view, may I say it that way, a more favorable view of sin, then our understanding of grace is faulty. The grace of God does never allow you to have a more favorable view of sin. The Bible says we are to abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Grace is not a means whereby to develop a more favorable view of sin. So the the effect and the desire of the effect of this scripture tonight is really to help us understand sin is possible in the life of the believer, but it's still a serious matter. It's still something that we should not take lightly and that grace is never. Shall we continue in sin? Romans 6, 1 says that grace may abound. Verse 2 says, God forbid. When God is speaking of sin in the life of the believer, it is always in utmost, I saved you from that. I want you clean of it, not continuing in it. And that's really the context of this tonight as well. And so again, we'll use the verses tonight as a springboard to deal with the subject of sin in the life of the child of God and the subject of God's chastisement as well because we need to understand that. If we're saved tonight, uh, then we need to understand the chastening hand of the Lord. One of the things that is most needful, most needful in our homes and in our churches, I believe we need more of it in this church, I need more of it in my home, is the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? Somebody help me now. What's the fear of the Lord? What's that? That's what the Bible says. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. If I don't hate evil, it indicates a lack of the fear of the Lord, doesn't it? I mean, it does. The fear of the Lord is an attitude, is it not? It's an attitude of my heart. That attitude is specifically and directly toward the Lord. 
Um, so let me, let me ask you this tonight. Maybe I used the same illustration recently, so if I did, forgive me. But how many of you, and just you're going to have to bear with me, how many of you tonight are afraid right now to not have a mask on? Are you trembling? Why not? Somebody help me. Why not? Jim, help me here. What? Correct. Or perhaps even those who are preaching that message. I mean, you have confidence, even if you had the fear of that, that that alone would save you from it, from getting it. My point is, the reason that's not your fear is because you don't believe all the messaging behind it. Am I correct? I can't speak for all of you. I can speak for me. One of the reasons I don't run around terrified without one is I don't believe all of it. I've seen lies. I've seen them verified. You say you're not a medical professional. I don't claim to be. All we have to do is pay attention to what was said here and what was said here and watch the hypocrisy of those who are preaching that message. And we say, I don't take it seriously because I don't believe what's being said. Really, the root of fear of the Lord is faith. When I believe the messaging, I fear disregarding it. Thought about this. A locomotive is a wonderful thing unless you're going the opposite direction. Would you agree? Our God is a consuming fire. Now, if you're on his side, it's a wonderful thing. But if you're going the other way, it's a miserable thing. Now, God is gracious. God is merciful. But God never changed his disposition about sin. God still hates evil. God still hates pride. God still hates it when we disregard his word and do disobedient things. God's attitude towards sin is the same. And here's my concern. Many times we misunderstand his long-suffering, his patience, and his mercy. And we, 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 in our mind, we correlate that to, well, if he's not killing me, he must be okay with what I'm doing. And we miscalculate the mercy and long-suffering of God as tolerance. That's not it. It's not tolerance. He's merciful. So I just want us to see tonight that if we are his children in 1 John 5 here, we do see it's possible. Our first point of our outline tonight is the potential for sin. There is the potential for sin in every one of us because we're still living in sinful bodies. That's why Paul gave us, the Holy Spirit through Paul, gave us Romans chapter 7, verse 17 and 18. I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Here's the, here's the truth of it. When God saved you, He gave you liberty. He gave you freedom. He gave you freedom of choice, the ability. Before you got saved, you're bound in sin. You really have no choice other than to choose forgiveness. You have that choice through the cross of Jesus Christ, His resurrection. He gives the man the choice to receive life or retain death. That choice. But once you've received life, you now have freedom of choice. I can either choose to obey my flesh or I can choose to obey the Holy Spirit. And when I obey the Holy Spirit, that's righteousness. And when I obey my flesh, that's sin. But know this, you always do have a choice. When we make the choice to listen to our flesh, that's called sin because it's unrighteous. We can do that because we have liberty. If you automatically always did what was right, that's not liberty. To have liberty, you have to actually have a choice in the matter. And as a Christian, you can choose to disregard counsel from Scripture. You can choose to disregard counsel from godly, uh, from godly authorities. You have that liberty. 
But know this, exercising that liberty comes with a price tag. My mom used to always tell me, Nevin, you can sin, but sin has a price tag. And as long as you're willing to pay the price tag, you can go ahead and do that. And I began to realize that the price tag that was advertised was not consistent with the one you had to pay. Anybody else realize about sin? The price that's advertised, oh, there'll be a little bit of grief. I'll have a little bit of tinge of conscience, but I'll be okay. I'll be able to cover it, and I'll be able to do this. And the price tag is much higher. It's exactly consistent with God's word. And what God is saying is in our lives, it is potential. We have a potential for sin, but not a potential for sin without consequence. And what he deals with here is sin is always serious. It may not be unto death, but even if it's not unto death, other believers ought to pray for those who've sinned that God might give them life and victory over it. Amen? It is something that we are to take seriously. So let's look here in verses 16 and 17 at the the seriousness of sin, beginning with the potential for it. Verse 16, If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. Uh, and, and God remains vague here, and I believe he does it on purpose. Uh, he, does, he doesn't fill us in. That was a sin unto death. The best way to know that someone did not commit a sin unto death is that they sinned and they're still alive. <laughs> so if you saw a brother's sin and they're still living, pray for them. Now, I'm just telling you, it is very rare, very unique, for I believe, even in Scripture, for God to carry out the, the execution, if you would, or the taking away of the life, the physical life, to cut a Christian off. God is extremely long-suffering. He is patient with us. He'll work on us and work on us and work on us and work on us. But I'm telling you, I know of believers today who are dead and in heaven because they would not cooperate with His workings. They're gone. They began to be a, a, a tremendous shame to the name of Christ. They began to live their lives as though they'd never been saved. And next thing you know... Their lives are snuffed out. And I could give you those examples, but our belief that there is a sin unto death and sins not unto death should not be based on our experiences. It should be based on the Word of God. I don't believe tonight that there is a sin unto death because of the number of people I have seen die. I believe it because the Bible says it. And by the way, we we may not believe that tonight and uh, we could become Exhibit A. Uh, God is still in the business of dealing with his children. So let's look at the potential for sin. Verse 16, it says this, If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not in death, he shall ask, he shall give him life for them that sin in death. First thing I would deal with here is obviously, and we've said it over and over, sin is possible for us. He says, if any man see who? His brother. They're talking about the family of God. That's the entire context of 1 John. The family of God, the family of God. You can see a brother sin a sin. Well, normally, if in our culture, just help me, maybe I'm misunderstanding with my ear to the culture, what I'm hearing, but in our culture, how would our culture of Christianity today tell you to deal with a sin that you've seen a brother sin? What would the answer of the so-called Christian culture be if we see a brother sin? What would be the advice given to us? What's that? Ignore it. Who are you to judge? Who are you to judge a brother? I mean, really, you're not a, they'll use Bible. You don't judge another man's servant, and that's true. But this is not talking about making a judgment call. Let me ask you something. If Colton observes me taking something that doesn't belong to me from a store and not paying for it, and then someone says, are you going to pay for that? I'm like, no. I've shopped this store for years. I think they owe it to me. What did he see me do? Steal. 
Is there a question in anybody's conscience if I took it and won't pay for it that I stole? So is he making a judgment call or did God already judge if you take what doesn't belong to you, it's stealing and that's sin? If I lie to you, I tell you something that is that is patently not true and you can prove that. This is what I want you to see. There's a, there's a possibility of sin here, but he's not talking about, well, I think that person might be sinning. You know, I saw his, I saw that guy's car parked in that house three times. I think he is being immoral. No, you can't do that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that is perceivable and something that is provable. If any man see his brother sin a sin, you know what God is saying? It is possible to see your brother in Christ do something that in your conscience you know was the transgression of God's law, was unrighteous. You observed it. You saw it. And you recognize what that brother just did was sin. Right? But we have a culture. I mean, you know this as well as I do. That's teaching us, no, 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 you can't do that. You can never call what somebody else does a sin. Unless you're calling, judging others a sin. Now, you're allowed to do that one. But all things else are off limits. You know what God's saying? There are going to be times because of the potential for sin in our lives, that we are going to see one another do something that is sinful. In the family of God, you're going to see a brother or a sister sin. Well, then what are you supposed to do? God's first recourse is pray. James 5. Look there at uh, James 5 with me if you would. And friend, I need this tonight because first thing I want to do is think about it. I can't believe they did that. Why should the sin of other people shock us so much? You reckon they never see any in us? Why should it shock me when other people do what I've done? It shouldn't shock me. It should concern me. Amen. It should concern me for my brother. This, you know what this is telling me? How much of First John is about loving the brethren? Chapter 3 and chapter 4 are almost exclusively about loving the brethren. You and I do not love the brethren by pretending that they don't sin. Brethren do sin. That's why we're dealing with the potential for it. Some of us have been members of this church together for a number of years. And we've seen one another do things that are unrighteous. I'm not talking about living in continued, but I'm telling you, you're going to see a brother sin. And you're going to have to figure out, what do I do when I see my brother sin? James chapter 5. Now, if it's a sin against you personally... Well, then you may have to, you're going to have to go to them and say, you trespassed against me. But how many of you know many times the sin we see each other do is not against us? It's just against something between that person and the Lord. They're being deceitful in their dealings or they're, they're being slothful or they're being a backbiter or uh, whatever it may be. Those are all sins. And what we're supposed, maybe they're not giving like they should and they're refusing to do something they should. James 5, uh, verse, uh, 14 says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another. And what's it say next? And pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I wonder how much more we would avail if all of us were just a little more honest about our needs. Anybody in this room grapple with sin today? I am. And you have too. 
I mean, it was, and I'm not talking about going around and spilling your guts all the time. Or, well, I did this and I think this. But you know what? We often, it is our nature. We think maybe it's unique to the 21st century. It is our nature to want to communicate, I got it together. I've got it. But you know what? God says that's not the case of Christians. You're going to see your brother sin. And when you do, you need to pray for him. The potential for sin, it's possible to see a brother or sister sin. And when we do, the Lord says, if it's not a sin unto death, then you pray for them. And I'll get into that in just a moment. I have a whole point about the prayer. But here's the thing. What we're dealing with is not sitting in our mind, entertaining, I wonder what they're doing. That's not what we're talking about. If, a bro- if any man see a brother sin, a sin. Meaning this is something you can see. It is something that is clear in your own conscience was disobedience to God. And he says this. So that's the, that's the potential for sin. Then he deals with the prayer for that sinner and the prayer concerning the sin you've seen. If any man see his brother sin, a sin which is not in death, he shall ask. All right, we're dealing with the context of prayer. Remember, we have confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. So God says, here's something I want you to ask me about. If you see your brother sin a sin that's not in death, I want you to ask for life for them. And you know what we need to overcome sin? We need the life of Jesus Christ. Do we not? I was telling my, my hospital visitor today, as I sit with him, I, I was just giving him my testimony of how precious the truth of Romans 5, 8 through 10 has become to me over the last couple of years. It has given strength to my soul that's hard for me to explain I, I, I explained it to him this way. When I first got saved, and for the first number of years of my Christian life, uh, what God did is he took me back to the cross again, and he still takes me back there every day. But he took me back to the cross and showed me the great love of God and what Jesus Christ did for me in being punished for my sins. And I became, just at the age of 16, the death of Jesus Christ, and the fact that he would save me and keep me saved, broke my will. And I became just, it it, it grabbed hold of my heart what Christ had done for me when he died for me. And so from that, it stirred in me a motivation. If he loves me that much that he has taken it fully upon himself through his suffering to save me, then I'm going to live for him. And the love of Christ seen in his death constrained me to serve him. But if you've ever been constrained to serve the Lord, it doesn't take long to figure out, wait a minute. I want to serve him, but performing is a little bit of a difficult task. So you got this great heart to please the Lord because the love of Christ that you see in his death on the cross constrains you, but the constraint of his death is enough to get you started. But that memory and that thought of his death is not enough to give you power to do right. You literally need the life of Christ ministered to you to live a life of victory. Our strength in our flesh is not sufficient to do the will of God. And so what, what the Spirit of God has done is said, you know what, that's the death of Christ, but here's the life of Christ. The death is something He did for me. That took care of my pardon, but His life secures my victory. So when you, you see a brother sin, you know what they need? They need life. They need a, a boost of strength. Give us this day our daily bread. You know what bread ministers to you? Life. Life, it gives you strength. We have, we have a listless Christianity that's anemic and running on fumes in America. And you know what we need? We need to pray for brethren. Oh God, help them. No, you know what? We need to pray for brethren to conquer sin. Amen? 
And, and what, what happens in haughtiness and pride, we gawk and we say, oh, I can't believe that they would do that. Well, believe it, they do. <laughs> yes? And if they're saved and they're alive, instead of, you know what, there's a temptation. And look, I understand there are false professors, I don't know how many. But be careful labeling someone a false professor because you saw them sin a sin. God says if any man see a brother sin a sin that is not a death if he pray for him. If he ask life, God's promised to give it. I don't know about you, I really enjoy the promises connected to prayer where they are this specific. If you will ask life for a brother that you've seen sin, I'll give it. How many of you tonight are sure you have at least two people that love the Lord praying for you on a regular basis? I have a dear, I know my parents pray for me. I know they pray for our family and I appreciate my, my, my parents very much. But a dear friend of our family, uh, you'll hear me refer to my Uncle Mike. I never speak to him. And he calls me Nevi. And he says, Nevi, I've prayed for you today in your family. Every day that man prays for our family. Every day. I don't, I, pray, I don't pray for him for every day, and I love him, but he prays. You know, what that, you know what that tells me? I wonder how many times I've received the life I needed because a brother who saw me in trouble said, Lord, help him today. He's, he's not doing well, Father. You know he's disobeying you. How I many reckon we're still alive today because somebody prayed for us? I'll guarantee you. I remember years ago I had an aunt. I was doing terribly spiritually. I was sinning. And I had a testimony of salvation. And she said to me, she said, and she's not where she ought to be today. But she said, Nevin, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you to obey God. And she was praying seriously for me. And I look at the point in my life, she said that a year or two before I got some things right with the Lord, I believe God answered her prayers. I wonder if we would pray more for people we see sinning if we'd see more results in their lives. Amen? Amen. We've got to do what's right, but here God says, if you see a brother sin, a sin that is not in death, and you ask, he says uh, in verse uh, 16, he shall ask and he shall give him life, give him life for them that sin not unto death. Now, this indicates to me there are those who sin away their opportunity to get reconciled in fellowship with God, and God says, I just, I'm done. God's very patient, but he is not, he is long-suffering, but he's not forever suffering. He will not tolerate sin forever. Uh, there was a man I heard preaching some time back, and I referenced to you, and he read, I don't know from what translation of the Bible, but it talks about God's everlasting patience instead of God's long-suffering. That's problematic. God is not everlastingly patient, but he is long-suffering. And so anyway, all I'm saying is the prayer for the, regarding sin is we ought to put a priority on prayer. We read that in James chapter 5, that if someone is sick, and especially sick through sin, we're to pray for them, that they may be healed. And uh, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And uh, sometimes we don't know. There's, there's different messages for why... People have sicknesses. Sometimes it's a trial of our faith. But sometimes it's chastisement from God. I have watched people go through God's chastening. I've watched it. I've watched people say no to the word of God. And I've watched the afflictions come in their life. It's not always that evident. But some people it's evident. And you know what? There's a, a temptation to be callous in our hearts. But God says pray and I'll give them life. And so the prayer ought to be a priority. The purpose of prayer uh, is that they might have life. Hang that up if you would. The promise of prayer 
is that unless it's a sin unto death, God will give them life. Uh, now, if he's already determined that death is the answer, no prayer we can offer will spare them. I don't find Peter praying for Ananias and Sapphira. I don't find that. He tested them and proved them. I don't find him praying for them. So the potential for sin, it's possible, but it's, it must be perceivable and provable. The prayer regarding sin it should be a priority. The purpose of our prayer is not to go be tattletales, but to ask life for those who've sinned because sin, the wages of sin is death. But we have a privilege as God's children to pray for our brethren. We all understand that we've been spared from spiritual death, the second death, but we understand what we're talking about tonight. The sin and the death is talking about physical death. That's what it's speaking of, our lives being cut short. How many of us understand we have an appointment with death? God has already set an appointment with us with death. Now, Hezekiah got his, his appointment extended 15 years but he still had to keep the appointment. Many people, I believe this, we have the ability to speed up our appointment. You can shorten your life. You can, you can respond to God in such a way that he says, well, I had intended for you to do this, but because of your sins, I'm going to have to cut you short. That's all through Scripture. That we can, be, we can cut our lives short through folly and sin, and so that's the warning here is that there is a sin unto death. You can't pray that one away. If God's determined that's what's going to happen, there's no solution for that. But if it's not a sin and a death, God will give life, and that's how we should pray. Number three, he is, of course, here dealing with punishment for sin. Some shy away from the word punishment. I understand we have been spared eternal punishment, but we've not, I use the word punishment in the sense of the Bible, that we've not been spared chastisement. Or the Bible word is judgment. How many know that though the child of God will not be eternally judged, we are judged in this life that we be not condemned eternally. God chastens us. If we're judged now, it's chastisement. And so there is a punishment connected with disobedience. Go now to Hebrews chapter 12. God so plainly and clearly declares this. There are false teachers in our day who go to the book of Hebrews chapter 12 and take their pen knife and slice it all to pieces with their uh, studiousness about language and so forth. And uh, we don't want to do that. Now, Hebrews chapter 12. I apologize about the phone. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning verse 4. He says, You have not yet resisted. We have a declaration concerning chastisement or punishment for sin. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. All right, so we are expected to do what? Strive against sin. And he said, you've not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and you have forgotten. And by the way, this exhortation is found in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And you have forgotten the exhortation, which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. By the way, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus said, whom I love, I do what? Chasten and rebuke. Now you tell me, is that the concept of our loving Heavenly Father in modern Christianity in America? The mark of love is affirmation, not chastisement. But Jesus said, the mark of my love is chastening. Whom I love, I chasten. All right, so verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection 
unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Does it not sound to you like what he's saying? When you sin, God's going to chasten you, and when you've been chastened, it's going to take the life out of you, and so it's your responsibility to strengthen those who have lost some strength in life through chastisement. Is that what it sounds like to you? You know, one of the number one tools we have to strengthen those whose feet are about to be turned out of the way, whose hands are hanging down and their knees are weak because they just got a whipping? Prayer. Lord, give them life, give them strength, give them life and give them strength. Would it come alongside and strengthen those who are weakened through chastisement, lest they be what? Turned out of the way, meaning they're going to go right back out in the sin they were in. And Galatians 6 deals with the same concept. Uh, Brethren, if any man be overtaken to fault, you which your spiritual restore such an one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The idea is we have a responsibility towards sinning brethren, but we need to understand When a brother sins, God has declared, I'm going to chastise my children. And what some may say, well, I'm a child of God and I haven't been chastised. (laughs) You better step back and take some examination then. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. If you are a child of God and endure no chastisement, then God lied. So if I can disobey God and not be chastened, then I'm not a child of God. But if I'm a child of God, I will undergo chastisement. Now, that chastisement, I believe, can come in many forms. If you're a saved young person, it may just come directly through your parents. God's commanded them to chastise you on his behalf, if you would. And uh, so it may come in that way. But know this, God's chastisement is specifically for his own children. That's what Hebrews 12 is about. He doesn't chastise those who don't belong to him. He chastens those whom he loves and loves in the sense of a father and a child. And so it is specifically for the children of God and it's specifically for the purpose of us being partakers of his holiness. God wants us to partake of his holiness, something that is so maligned and and belittled by the mainstream so-called evangelicals or Christians of our day. There is a de-emphasis on holiness and if not a de-emphasis, a redefinition. You need to be careful not to redefine holiness. God's holiness is his righteousness. He is full of grace and truth, both at the same time. That's his holiness. And so then uh, God declares there is a chastisement for sin in our lives. Then he also makes a distinction. All chastisement is not the same because not all sin is the same, especially when you're dealing with a child of God. None of your sins are going to condemn you eternally. You've been pardoned. How do you know this? There is a difference in a governor's pardon for a criminal and a father's forgiveness of his child. Is there a difference? When a governor pardons a criminal, it is a legal act clearing him of his crimes against the state. When a father and a child have a problem, it's a completely different relationship. When my children sin, it doesn't negate our relationship. It just destroys our fellowship. And when they come to me and say, Dad, I should have obeyed you, I did wrong. I'm going to forgive them, but I never even considered disowning them. It was never in my mind. 
And there may be, may, may I say this, there, even as humans, we have different levels of chastisement because of different things done. If I have a child that repeatedly forgets to make his bed because he's slothful, that may end up resulting in it will eventually a spanking. But I'm going to deal with that differently than if it's some serious act. If one of them picks up a baseball bat and hits his brother because he's angry, I'm going to deal with that differently. I have no room for the second one whatsoever. The other one is a matter of growth. This is a matter of evil in your character. And when you whack your brother with a baseball bat, you're going to deal with me in a hurry, and it's not going to be pretty. Amen? I'm not going to let you do that to your sibling. That's my job. And you listen, if we as mere human beings can get a hold of this, God deals with us differently. You notice this? Ananias and Sapphira, some say, well, they weren't even saved. Many commentators say, well, they weren't even saved. They were part of that church. And I tend to believe they were children of God. I do know this. They died for their sin. Like that. Now, God has not killed every person always that lied to the Holy Ghost. But early on in church history, he wanted to establish it's going to be your tendency to want to pretend you're something you're not. And I have no tolerance for that. And he dealt with their dishonesty. They projected themselves as being fully consecrated to God. We sold everything and gave it all when in fact they were holding back part for themselves. They were liars and God killed them over it. And God's not killed every liar and I'm glad he hasn't. But he chose at that moment, at that time, to deal with their sin in that way and there was a sin unto death and he killed them on the spot. Ananias first, then Sapphira. You find that in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, turn there if you would. We're warned that if we defile our bodies... We are, in, we are in danger of the judgment of God because our body is what? Is it because it's... Look, if you could lose your salvation, why would God warn us against defiling the body? He would say, well, now that you've defiled your body, you're no longer the temple. No, once you're saved, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And he said, because that's a permanent truth, you must be mindful what you do with your body or I'm going to deal with you. First Corinthians chapter 3. By the way, you know why we have these Bible verses? Because God's kind enough to warn us before he deals with us. You know why he moves preaching about these things? He's kind enough to caution us before the hammer falls. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I say the hammer falls, what I mean is God chastening us to the point, perhaps, and it's extreme, but perhaps even to death. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, the Bible says, he's built, speaking of the, 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 the work that we build on our foundation of faith in Christ, he says in verse 16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Now he's writing to who? Christians or non-Christians? Believers or non-believers? Believers. And he's warning you, if you defile your temple, God will destroy you. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Let no man deceive you. Why does he say that next? Because we're prone to be deceived. Well, I'm the temple of God. God wouldn't destroy me. I can interest you. In A.D. 70, he destroyed a temple in Jerusalem, a physical building, because it was defiled. And he destroyed it. Well, our body's now the temple. So he says, let no man deceive, you, deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. And so on and so forth. So he warns here, uh, we see Ananias and Sapphira, they were destroyed for deceit, deceiving the Holy Spirit of God or trying to. Here, it's over defilement of the temple of the Holy Ghost uh, by the way, what is the one sin that God says is unforgivable? Blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. You and I, when you see in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira were sinning against who? They didn't blaspheme the Holy Ghost. Don't misunderstand me. They did not. 
Blaspheming of the Holy Ghost is something you do with your mouth. It is, in essence, with your mouth outwardly calling the Holy Spirit of God a liar concerning Jesus Christ. You can't, be, you can't have salvation if you call the Holy Spirit of God a liar concerning Jesus Christ. You cannot. That's unforgivable. But here, we're not dealing with that. But you know what? Lest a child of God get there, God might kill you first. <laughs> because in Acts 5, you know, what, you know what Ananias and Sapphira were doing? They were sinning against the Holy Spirit of God, were they not? They lied. Peter said, you've lied to the Holy Ghost, not to men. Here in 1 Corinthians 3, who are, who's being sinned against? The Holy Spirit of God. You're the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you. And that's serious. God takes very seriously our disregard, deception of, defilement of that which is set apart for the Holy Spirit of God. And so then, look if you would in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You have an example of someone defiling their temple. It's the man living in fornication. He was living with his father's wife. So it was his stepmother in a fornicating relationship. And uh, the church was told to deal with him in what we would call church discipline because of his open, blatant defilement of himself and, and thereby the defilement of the church. And so First Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 5, the Bible tells us this, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, means under Christ's authority and by his, his direction, his authority, when you are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan... For the destruction of the, what's he say? This verse is so specific. For the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You know what he's saying? You've got to release this man from your fellowship so that God, you, you get your hands off of him, your protective care. God's going to deal with him by, by him being turned over to Satan, not for the destruction of the soul, but the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of, of, of judgment. Meaning, God's going to allow this man to be destroyed of Satan and his body killed so that his spirit may be saved. There are times people get so engrossed in sin, the only way for the Lord to secure that soul is to go ahead and kill their body. That's serious, isn't it? And we're living in an age that Christians better get a hold of this. Because we're living in an age where we are so drawn by the world to defile our bodies in sin and God has warned us in His Word it's a serious matter. And by the way, we could, here's the flesh. You know what the flesh will do? The flesh will say, well, I've never really seen that happen. What we would be suggesting then is that the Bible's not being truthful with us. Right? And that's serious and that's what gets us in trouble. And so then, uh, we find there in 1 Corinthians 5, a sin unto death and that being the fornicating relationship was being lived in, turning over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved. That tells us he was eternally secure, but his body was not. And so then uh, we find finally in 1 Corinthians 11, the third example of sin unto death in the lives of Christians, of believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. And this has to do with despite for holy things or disregard for holy things. I was listening to some preaching this week and it was, it was warning of how easy it is to take holy things for granted and treat them as unholy when we're used to it. This room tonight, and you hear me preach about this much, but there's a reason, is full of second and third and fourth generation believers. Our parents or grandparents were saved and we heard the gospel from them and it's very easy. In this room tonight, we could quote verse after verse after verse because we're so familiar with biblical vernacular. We're familiar with the hymns. We're familiar with church terms so that we're so familiar that we may think ourselves to be holy and start disregarding holy things. 
Uzzah, the man who reached out and touched the ark, one of the reasons he did that ark had been in his house for 20 years. He felt very comfortable around it. I remember when I was a boy, we would have the Lord's table and go down to the basement when it was done and enjoy sipping the grape juice. We don't do that around here. When we're done with the grape juice, we go pour it out. I don't want us to think of the Lord's table as a fun time to drink grape juice and eat unleavened bread. That's not what it is. It is a sincere and sober moment where we remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And if we ever get to the point where we partake unworthily, meaning we are not prepared in our spirit and our mind to view it the way we're supposed to, we're in danger of chastisement. So we find deceit of the Holy Spirit of God, defilement of His temple, and disregard for who the Lord Jesus Christ is and disdain uh, and despite. You remember when David sinned with Bathsheba? God says, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? You think David thought, I hate that stupid commandment about adultery. No, that's not what despite was. He didn't take it seriously. That's what despite was. He didn't take it seriously. Oh, well, it's, yeah, I'm familiar with that. I've heard it so many times I could you know, quote it to you backwards. There are, some of those wicked people in our day are people who were raised in, in Bible-believing, independent, fundamental Baptist churches, and they became so used to spiritual things, they talk about it like it's street jargon. And they're vile, and they're prone for the judgment of God. And so then the Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, and that word means irreverently, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. That's talking about his body, the church. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. It's the same concept in 1 Corinthians 5. The flesh is destroyed that the spirit may be saved the day of judgment. When we're judged of the Lord as God, His chastisement in our life is the very distinguishing factor. You're not like them. You're one of mine. And I'm not going to let you sin and get by with it. You know, the world may mock taking of the Lord's Supper. There are people that have had mock church services. Benjamin Franklin was known to be involved with a group that would have mock church services. And he lived and succeeded in politics because he was a reprobate. Amen? Unless he got saved before he died. But when a child of God does that, you're in danger of judgment. You're in danger even perhaps, the Bible says, many are sick and some are sleeping, meaning they've died. Why? Because of their irreverence for the Lord's table, God killed them. That's serious, isn't it? And he didn't kill them because they weren't his children. The Bible says he he chastised them and killed them because they were his children. And so then tonight, say, is these scare tactics? No, 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 no. It is to help form the fear of God in our hearts. You know, and again, God's very patient. God's very long-suffering and merciful. But to whom much is given of the same is much required. How do you know when you cross that line it's a sin unto death? What portion of Scripture helps us see the formula and say, yep, there it is. Does God spell out when it's, all right, this is when? Wonder why? Because he knows us. That's one of the reasons. If we knew when, we might do everything right up until that point and say, but I won't sin the sin unto death. And he says, there is a sin unto death and there's sin unto All unrighteousness is sin. If it's unrighteous, it's sin. But not all unrighteousness is punishable by death. But we do see some instances in the Bible enough to give us a warning to say, you know what, there are moments in history when God says, you know what, I'm going to deal with that one of my children right now by taking them out. When will God do that? That is at his own choosing because he's God. 
He knows when at the right time and when it's the right moment to honor, to defend the honor of his own name and to bring. You know what? After Ananias and Sapphira died, you know what came into the church? The fear of God. Now, well, Pastor, for the, we want people to fear God. Should we pray for the sin unto death? I say not that you should pray for it. I don't believe you should ever pray for God to kill anybody. Amen. If they're unsaved, we should pray that God bring them to repentance and they might get saved. If they're a wayward brother, we should pray for God to give them life, not death. John says, I'm not telling you to pray for death. That is God's own doing. And only God can determine when that is right. We're not to pray for that. We're to pray for life. You know what we need to be praying for in this church and in our church is not for death. Because it might be a part of us say, well, I want people to fear God. Well, let's not pray for death. Let's pray for us to take God's word seriously that we might have life. Amen. How many of you need prayer tonight? I do. You know what? May God help us. If we're not in a position where we say, well, I'm not out of fellowship with God as far as I know, well, then let's be on praying ground so we can pray for others who are. Amen? And then let's take seriously. Sin in the life of the believer, it is a potential, but it, it will be chastised, and it may be chastised by death. We ought to be very familiar with these scriptures for the purpose of responding to them with wisdom. Mm-hmm.